Hello, and welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and uncover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, we hear from Asha Rangappa. Asha is a former FBI special agent in the New York division, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. Her work at the FBI involved assessing threats to national security, conducting classified investigations on suspected foreign agents, as well as performing undercover work. Asha is now a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and was an associate dean at Yale Law School. She has published open eds in the New York Times, the, New York, the Wall Street Journal, as well as the Washington Post, and has appeared on NPR, BBC, and several major television networks. She is also an editor for Just Security and is currently a legal and national security analyst for CNN. Asha's career is absolutely fascinating, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with her as much as I did. So without further ado, Asha Rangappa. All right, Asha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are very, very excited to um, have you on South Asian Stories. You've been one of the most requested interviews we have, um, and we're just just pumped to have you. So I'd love to start a, a little bit, um, you know, about the beginning of your experience at, at the FBI. I understand that, you know, the whole process took a, a while, but I want to start at, you know, middle of the action when you were on your way, you know, to, to Quantico and, and uh, you know, that car accident happened. I feel that was a, you know, defining moment for you. Could you talk a little bit about that story and how, um, how that started your journey to Quantico? Well, I applied when I was in law school. I was trying to find a workaround because I wanted to be an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney. I want to be a federal prosecutor. And usually uh, the traditional path for that is to graduate from law school and work for a law firm for three to five years and then to apply to the U.S. attorney's office. Um, And I just really wasn't interested in working for a law firm. So I thought I'd apply to the FBI and I thought I would do the criminal investigative side as a way to get experience and then eventually move over to the prosecutorial side. And this was all before 9-11. So, you know, it really wasn't something that was on people's radars or anything, but um, that was kind of why I applied. Cool. And and once you got the the notification like, hey, we want you to proceed with your application, what happened then? Well, you know, you you go through several stages. So um, you know, when you first put it in your application, basically they schedule you to take a test. Um and there's like various, you know, I, I don't even remember what that phase was about. Um, but it's like a written test and it, um, I guess assesses various skills and then only some percentage of that then go on to the next phase. Um, and that will be an interview and, um, a written test. And again, I I don't recall it's so long ago at this point that I don't know all the phases and they may be different right now. So it's not like you apply and you just get, you get a call. Like it is a government agency. So they have a very structured process that goes through several phases. 
Um, and you have to pass each phase before you can proceed to the next one. So, you know, I, I passed through the first phase and, um, again, this was before 9-11 and they weren't hiring. The FBI wasn't hiring at mm-hmm. that time. They were on a budget freeze. Um, or not, maybe not freeze, but they just didn't have the money to be hiring agents very aggressively. So I kind of just sat in the queue for a while. And it was during my clerkship, or right at the end of my clerkship, a clerkship is when you work for a judge after graduating from law school, that um, 9-11 happened. And as soon as 9-11 happened, Congress gave the FBI money to hire thousands of new agents. So that was when I started being processed more quickly because at that stage they were looking for people with particular skills. And I was in their system as a foreign language speaker. So I kind of got expedited through the process. So I went through, you know, the second phase and then the polygraph and drug test and background check and all of that um, over the span of about nine months, it took for all of that to become complete. And then eventually um, was uh, given you know, the, the date to report to Quantico. Yeah. And, and that date, um, you know, I've, I heard that was a, that was a big day for you because you were, can you talk a little bit about that, that incident that happened that, that ended up having you to push your, your, your start date about a month? Yeah. So, um, you know, I had been, working out and I was gotten the call for Quantico. Um, and a week before I was scheduled to report to Quantico, I was riding in a car and I was in a car accident where an oncoming vehicle basically hit the passenger side door with the door where I was sitting and I was rushed to the hospital and I had rib injuries So I called Quantico and I mean, you had to have like a very perfect bill of health to show up there. So they didn't want me there um, in that condition anyway, but they gave me kind of a month recovery time. And again, they were hiring FBI agents very at a very fast clip. So, you know, they couldn't guarantee me a spot, you know, two months from then or three months from then. So they said, you know, put you in a month from now and see how you feel. And then you can show up. So I didn't want to push it any more than that because I didn't want to lose my chance. So I went after five weeks, which if you've ever had a rib injury, they heal very slowly and there's not really much you can do about them. Um, They just kind of heal on their own. So I showed up five weeks later pretty much not having, you know, trained in those five weeks or, and also in a lot of pain still. And that was really hard because on the second day at Quantico, they give you a PT test and I failed it really badly. Um, Like I got zero points total. You can get like positive points and negative points. And I, I did get a few positive points, but they canceled out you know, the neg- you know, they all canceled each other out. So I ended up at the zero. And that was not a great way to start out there. Yeah. And, and how were you feeling when, when you, you know, the accident happened and, you know, you reported there, you're already on a, in a, a little bit of, of, you know, decline in terms of like, hey, I have to start from not ground zero, but almost negative. What was going through your head and how did you overcome that? 
Um, what do you mean? Like, like, you know, how, like, just how did I deal with that? Yeah. How did you deal with it mentally? Cause I'm sure you were, you're crushed after the accident and, you know, you practicing so hard at getting the best physical shape. You go to Quantico, you know, and you see this, this big physical test in front of you that looks daunting. How, how did you overcome that with your mental toughness? Um, well, you know, you have to, uh, just kind of decide what you're gonna, like how you're gonna handle that. I mean, you know, um, they're very tough on you there and pretty much, you know, they were like, you could go home if you want. Um, or they offered me also, like they have this thing at Quantico where if you fail something really big, like PT or firearms or something like that, where you can't move forward, um, they do something, it's awful term. They call it recycling. So they'll send you to a field office and you push paper for like a couple of months or something until you can, uh, build up the skills that you need. So, and they give you kind of one chance to do that. So you could do that if you fail the PT or if for some people they fight, they fail firearms. So they might get recycled and get, get a second chance to do that. Um, and again, I just didn't want to leave. I didn't, yeah. I felt like I was either going to stay and finish it or leave for good and just decide that that wasn't it. And so, um, you know, for me, deciding to stay was just doubling down and committing to making it happen. So, um, and you know, it's not, these physical tests were not easy. They were harder than I even expected. So I think even if I had been com- in completely great shape or had not been in the accident, it still would have been challenging for me. So this was kind of just a double whammy. Yeah. Um, but I just had to do what I had to do. I mean, I don't even remember really agonizing. I mean, I, I, I decided, you know, there was, I was demoralized for sure. And I was like, should I stay? But once I decided to stay, I just sat down and was like, okay, I have to get up at four in the morning. I have to go and run and lift weights and do all that stuff for two hours. And then I had to, you know, I'm going to work out again in the evening. Like, so I just did it. And fortunately the, environment there is that people do things in groups. So I had other people to work out with and, um, you know, the instructors there give you feedback and tips and stuff like that. So they're very strict and sometimes they're even mean, but I think they also give you the tools to succeed if you're willing to put in the work for it. Right. Right. And once you put in the work, you got through the test, um, what was that a feeling of elation? Like you felt like, Hey, I got through the, one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. And, and now I'm here. What was that? What was that day like when you, when you graduated and, and you finished everything you needed, you know, knowing how you started, what was that like for you? Well, you know, like I said, for me, the physical test was the challenging part and so they give you a second test kind of halfway through, like at six weeks. Yeah. So that was when I actually passed it with flying colors. I put in so much work. I'd work really hard. I think I even I really surprised all of my instructors and even my classmates at how well I did. So the satisfaction really came at that point. And actually, 
I got so, you know, I felt so confident that for me, the second half of the training just was even really much more enjoyable. And, you know, I could kind of relax and really absorb everything that they were teaching. Um, because it wasn't just physical training and we were doing, you know, academics, we were doing interrogation techniques, we were doing firearms. So I was just in a completely different mindset in that second half of kind of having overcome this really huge challenge and feeling like it was really transformative. I was like, wait, I can totally do anything. And so it kind of really changed my worldview in a way moving forward. So by the time I graduated, I kind of had already gone through like kind of a second wave of, you know, having accomplished um, a lot and, it was just kind of a capstone more than um, anything. I think the turning point for me was that mid sure. uh, training test. Sure, sure. Um, and I want to talk, Asha, a little bit about um, you know you being one of the first few Indian American females, right? And I'm sure there's a ton of people listening who um, are South Asian who you know don't have many other people to look up to who have done the, uh, something similar to them. So. You know, how did your identity of being South Asian, you know, factor in into your choice of of, of joining the FBI and, and you know, um, and, and doing the the other fascinating things about your career, you know, clerking in, in Puerto Rico? What, what? How would you describe your identity as South Asian? How did that contribute to the career choices you made? Honestly, they it didn't. And I think that that has been a huge benefit to me. I never, I mean, and I'm proud of being Indian. There's a lot of things about my culture that I keep, you know, I consider myself Hindu. I speak a language, um, I celebrate holidays. I pass this on to my kids, but you know, I never grew up walking around like thinking kind of consciously of myself of I'm Indian American. What does this mean for me in terms of my choices? Um, you know, I grew up in Southern Virginia where I was actually the only Indian in my high school. <laughs> so I couldn't really afford to have that be the core of my identity and have that determine choices I made because when I looked around, there weren't any Indians. So, you know, I never. I never kind of approached things as, wow, I've never seen an Indian American woman as an FBI agent. I don't know if I can do that. Like that just wasn't a calculus. Sure. It was more like, this is just something I want to do and I'm going to do it. And I never felt that there was really an impediment. In fact, I always felt like, Hey, they have things that I, they ha- they need things that I have. I can speak languages. I have legal skills. So I always thought of it in terms of what I could offer and in terms of my skills and background and experience more than my identity as an Indian female. Sure, sure. And was there any point, you know, as you went through, you know, each stage of your career where you you thought to yourself like, hey, um, you know, me being Indian and me being South Asian this has come up in any sort of of way or has everyone evaluated you based on the skills that you brought in terms of, you know, um, your, your background and, you know, the, 
the, the just the raw horsepower academically and, and physically did being south asian ever come up at any of your in any of your um in, interactions no i mean you know when i did uh when i was in the fbi there were ways there were times or I guess opportunities where being Indian and being female and being young and young looking was an advantage in terms of, you know, if somebody wants to do an operation and they want to use someone who is not obviously going to be suspected to be an FBI agent, um, those characteristics can be incredibly helpful. You know, when I was walking around, no one would assume that I'm an FBI agent. Okay. And if a tall, you know, military looking guy with a crew cut, you know, maybe they might wonder if that person is an FBI agent. (laughs) So when it was relevant to the mission, um, it would come up explicitly, you know, whether I was evaluated on that or not, I have no idea. I don't know what goes on in people's heads. Um, It may very well be that there were people who harbored, I mean, and I'm not talking just in, in the FBI, but in general biases because I'm a woman or Indian or whatever, I'm sure, I mean, that exists in the world, but, you know, I always, I don't know. I always felt like, you know, I've worked very hard to get where I am. I know the things that I'm good at. I was also willing to see the things I was not good at. I mean, you know, I didn't fail the test at Quantico because of discrimination. I failed it because I couldn't do the, the actual physical tasks. So, you know, I think, um, for me, that wasn't, like I said, I was just not really thinking of it in those terms. And I think that's a relatively new phenomenon in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, as you know, I think Indians have be had, have, created more of a critical mass, it's almost like you can afford to think in those terms. But if you're like the only person, then yeah. you you can't. You learn to do what you need to do to succeed um, and not really use that as a factor to limit yourself or, um, you know, add an additional hurdle for yourself. Sure, sure. So, you know, you graduated Quantico and and you started work, uh, you know, as a special agent in New York. Can you talk a little bit about your role? Because I'm I'm sure many South Asians who are listening have seen what movies and TV shows show, what the FBI does. But can you explain exactly, hey, this is what I actually did and and what, what you really liked about it? Well, I was in the counterintelligence division and the counterintelligence division of the FBI is basically monitoring foreign intelligence activity in the United States. So they're basically catching spies. You're trying to figure out what other countries are doing here in terms of their intelligence services, um, you know, trying to neutralize them or make them ineffective in what they're trying to do, and then trying to get information about their capabilities and interests that we can use, uh, you know, in terms of intelligence when we're operating there or for policy reasons or diplomacy or whatever. In other words, we're trying to get their secrets too um, while they're here. So, you know, these were classified investigations. They're top secret. Um, It's not, you know, most foreign spies are here under diplomatic cover. 
which means that they're here posing as diplomats, even though they're really spies. Um, that gives them protection in the event that they're caught because then you can't prosecute them. They have diplomatic immunity. But what that also means is, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting in shootouts with diplomats or, um, you know, this is a very, like, it's a gentleman's game um, in terms of it's spy versus spy. There's a lot of chess moves and, you know, you're trying to figure out what the other side is doing and outmaneuvering them. So, you know, I mean, in terms of TV shows, I really enjoy The Americans. That's probably the closest okay. to, you know, it's, it's a Hollywoodized version of it, but it's more, um, frankly, it's one of the more realistic in terms of, you know, how the FBI approaches things on the counterintelligence side than, you know, a lot of the FBI shows that I've seen. Sure, sure. So you, you did that, Asha, for, for, for a few years. What made you decide, hey, I want to try something else? And how did you transition from from that to, you know, going to Yale? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of factors at that time. Um, I was in my early 30s. Um, I had married another agent. We were pretty poor. They don't pay you very well in the FBI, at least when sure. you first start out. And we were living in New York. And in a very, we were actually living in Jersey City and commuting into New York. Um, living in a very small apartment. So it's, you know, and, and had very tough schedules. I mean, a lot of the work that I did was very, very, was late at night. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a tough career to keep up. Um, you know, it's a tough career. It's a tough career to keep up in a relationship. It's a almost impossible career, I think, to keep up if you have children, um, especially if your spouse is also doing the same thing. And so, when we decided that we wanted to start a family, um, you know, it seemed like it would make sense for one of us to make a change. And at that time, Yale Law School was looking for a new dean of admissions. And Yale Law School has traditionally hired its own graduates for that position with the belief that someone who went to Yale Law School is best suited to identify other great candidates for law school. So I applied to that job and I got it. And I probably wouldn't have left the FBI for a lot of offers, but being the dean of admissions at Yale Law School seemed like a pretty cool gig to me. Yeah. And so I took it. That's great. And and how did you like your experience there? Are there any stories from 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 the from, you know, leading admissions at, at the Yale Law School that you said, "Hey, this is a lot different from working the FBI, but you know, anything you can share that you loved about working there? Well, I went to Yale Law School. So I, you know, for me, it was kind of homecoming. Like a homecoming. Yeah. I mean, I, all these professors that I had before were now my colleagues. Um, you know, I mean, you feel an enormous sense of responsibility because Yale Law School is the top law school in the country. It has the lowest acceptance rates. Um, the majority of the students that I would choose would choose to come to Yale. So you're in a very advantageous um, position. And as a result, you know, you're turning down a lot of highly qualified, amazing applicants. So, you know, I just always approached it with care. I wanted to democratize the process. So I started a blog to kind of open up a window into what happens behind the curtain. Um, yeah, I don't have any specific stories really, except that I, I think it was not 
that different from the work I was doing in the FBI in terms of, you know, a lot of what I did as a counterintelligence agent is assessing people and assessing their strengths and vulnerabilities and, you know, how they might play out in different scenarios. And a lot of that was transferable to what I did as the Dean of Admissions, except, you know, I was just doing it on paper um, and not as much in person, which is what I would do normally in the FBI. Sure, sure. And then after that, Asha, you know, it looks like your current role is at the Jackson Institute at Yale. How did you make that transition? Well, I had been at the law school for 12 years, and it was a great job to have as I, you know, like I mentioned, I started a family. Academia is fabulous for that. It gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, You know, I loved choosing all of these amazing classes that have gone through Yale Law School, and a couple of them are still there now. But, you know, I did get to a point where I felt like I needed to challenge myself and stretch in new directions. And I had been teaching for a few years at Wesleyan, and I was starting to do more commenting on TV about the Mueller investigation and the FBI, which, you know, kind of touches on a lot of what I did. It's a counterintelligence investigation. And I was writing more about uh, legal issues. And so I was offered an opportunity to basically be a faculty member at the Jackson Institute, which gives me a lot more space to do those kinds of things and teach. Um, And, you know, I was ready for a change. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at, and you mentioned this, that, you know, you've, you've, you've um, been tapped many times to give your point of view on the Russian investigation and, and your thoughts. How did that come up, Asha? Like, how did you develop your own voice and your, your, your thoughts and, and, you know, and, you know, your, your gig with the, with the CNN, how did those, mm-hmm. those, those items come up and how would, how did you develop your own personal point of view on the, on the proceedings? Well, I mean, when you have been in an organization and you kind of know how things work from the inside, I think you naturally have a point of view on it, right? So, you know, when you have public commentary or commentary from the president that uh, basically alleging certain things that, you know, the investigation doesn't have merit or whatever, informant gate or spy gate or whatever, you know, the the president was spying on him. I mean, if you know how things work in real life, then you have something to say about that. So um, how it started was really that one of those tweets, which is um, the president had tweeted that Obama had wiretapped him. And as someone who had gotten FISA orders, which are electronic surveillance orders from the FISA court, um, which you get for foreign intelligence purposes if people are spying. Um, I knew that, I just knew that legally and practically that was not true. Yeah. I mean, it just was not possible the way that things work. So I had, um, I had a contact at Fox News and she's a booker, um, basically who books guests who come on and talk about things. So I reached out to her and I said, you know, I don't know if you want, because I was also watching the news and people had no idea what they were talking about sure. in regard to FISA. I mean, people were just like making up stuff. So I wrote to her and I said, you know, if you want someone to explain FISA, I got these orders and I'm happy to talk about it. So she wrote back and said, well, can you be on at one o'clock tomorrow? 
Um, and you're like, sure. So I said, uh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, next thing I know, I'm on Fox News. I'm on a show. They were, it was a great show. Um, and the host just asked me questions, you know, kind of basic questions. Like, how does this work? Like, what what do you need to get one of these things? And I, I just talked about it. And I guess I did a good job because then, you know, they called me back again. And then a couple of other shows from Fox called me. And then when James Comey, the former director of the FBI, got fired, I wrote a piece for Politico. They reached out to me and said, you know, you used to be an agent. Do you want to write a piece on, you know, five questions about Comey's firing that you you answer. And I said, okay. So I went on Facebook and I asked my friends, I said, what, what questions do you want answered about Comey's firing? And people were really freaked out, you know, so they're like, you know, what's going to happen to the files? Are people going to burn them down? Right. Like, you know, all these kinds of uh, things. So I wrote an article where I went through these things and just kind of methodically explained like, no, people do their jobs. They're going to show up tomorrow. The investigation is going to continue. And that article got a lot of attention. And that's when I started getting calls from other networks to come on to talk about the FBI and what the firing meant and all of this stuff. And essentially, you know, within a few weeks, CNN uh, wanted to sign me on as a contributor to be exclusive to their network. Um, And that's how I ended up as a contributor there. It's been fantastic. How did you feel when you got that exclusive, um, you know, agreement from CNN? Did you feel like, oh, wow, a, a agency of a caliber of CNN is valuing my opinion. Were you excited about that? Yeah, I was definitely excited about it. I mean, it, you know, I, I really enjoyed being, you know, working with all the networks, the bookers were great and the shows were great. Um, you know, the way that it works in the TV industry is that if you're, you know, you, you don't get paid to do these appearances unless a network decides to offer you a contract to do something exclusively. So what this meant was that I would I would be paid by CNN to go on TV. And that was, you know, in addition to, oh, wow, they want me for a year and, you know, regularly come on, which is um, incredibly exciting. Um, it's also nice to be compensated for your time because, you know, when – you're called on as an expert to answer questions. It's a lot of preparation. You want to make sure that you're giving people, you know, interesting analysis insights that they might not have known. So there's a lot of time that goes into it. So um, it was, it was nice to kind of be offered a position where they valued um, that effort. Yeah. I, I, that sounds incredible. Do you, Asha, I, I'm, this is something that popped in my mind, but I want to hear your, your thoughts on this. Like when you were on these shows, right. And I'm sure, um, many times they brought some, uh, dissenting opinions to what you had. How did you manage that? How did you, you know, speak to people who didn't share your same view on, on different things? And, you know, how did you, um, approach that, you know, might've been a little bit, um, you know, confrontational uh, chat. How did, Do you mean on TV? On TV, yeah. When you're the lights are on, or if you had a differing opinion, what was that like? You basically just say that you disagree. Um, the, there are a lot. Of, most of the shows will have anchors that are moderating the conversation, so they'll be giving questions to each panelist. And in that case, you know. You, you listen to what your other panelist has to say, and when it's your turn, you can kind of 
disagree, say that you don't agree and give your point of view. The harder part is when you're in formats where you're in an ongoing conversation with a group of people like Anderson Cooper, um, because then the anchor isn't always pitching a question to you. You're expected to, you're basically expected to interrupt (laughs) or um, butt in, you know, so you have to have a certain amount of assertiveness and it can feel rude, but I think that you kind of learn a skill to do it with, with a little humor and, you know, um, civility and, you know, everybody who does these shows, they know that that's how it works. So I don't think people ever take it personally. Offset. What was it like interacting with Anderson Cooper for the first time? Was that intimidating or was it, you know, different from what you expected? Yeah, it was a little intimidating. I kind of got thrown onto the set. Um, I was, they flew me down to DC uh, the day that Comey was testifying last June and I kind of had no idea what to expect. And all of a sudden, you know, I put on the set with a bunch of these heavy hitters that are always on Anderson and Brooke Baldwin. And, um, you know, I think especially because it is that format where you have to kind of butt in or give your thoughts. And none of these people knew who I was, you know, so, um, but you right. just, you know, you just do it. Yeah. And it worked out well. It was great. Nice, nice. Um, cool. So uh, I also wanted to touch a little bit about things that you do um, that mo- not many people might not know is that um, uh, I understand that you're interested in, in, in acting and, and doing community theater. Can you talk a little bit about that interest and how that developed? Um, I've always done theater. Um, I, I'm i trying to think if I did it in, I think I did it in high school. Um, we didn't have a great drama department in my high school, but I mean, I did it all through college. I was in the triangle club at Princeton. Um, I did a play in Puerto Rico when I was clerking there. I started a theater group at Yale law school and produced the merchant of Venice in the courtyard. Um, I spent a summer after law school acting in a Shakespeare repertory theater in Texas instead of taking the bar. Eventually I did take the bar, but I didn't take it that summer. So, I mean, it's been an interest that's always been there. And once my kids got a little bit, you know, older um, and I could kind of take time away to do rehearsals and stuff, um, I started doing some community theater productions in Hamden where I live. So that was really fun. But it's it's just always been a part of my life, performing in some way. Yeah. No, that's 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 awesome. Do you feel that there was a play that you identify with or that you enjoy doing the most? Um, I think the Triangle Show productions that I did at Princeton were some of my favorites because they were uh, funny and they they were musicals and I could dance and I would sing. Um, I also really enjoyed uh, the Shakespeare summer that I did. I played Rosalind and As You Like It, and that was an amazing role to play. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. So, uh, you know, I know we don't have that much time left, so I just wanted to go through some of our rapid-fire questions from, from our audience. Is there a movie or book that has had a huge impact on you that you can think of that as um, – you know, pretty transformative? Um, well, I watched Lion the other night, or like, I guess within the last week. 
Um, I didn't see it when it came out in the theater and I've been meaning to, and I happened to, my parents were visiting and somehow we got it on Netflix and it was right when all of the news was breaking about the children being separated for the detention camps at the border. So that was a really, you know, I mean, it's a amazing movie in its own right, but I think put in the context of what's happening here, it was kind of especially, um, kind of gripping and moving. So um, I totally recommend that movie if people haven't seen it. Lion. Awesome. Awesome. So the last question I have for you, Asha, says, you know, many of our listeners are South Asians, as you know, is there uh, any advice that you could give them for someone who is interested in in law enforcement or, or the FBI or a government job? What advice would you give them and why? Yeah, I mean, I would say probably my advice would be to ignore your parents. <laughs> um, you know, I think that one of the things, you know, and I mean, look, I, our parents came here and sacrificed a lot. And, you know, it must be one of the scariest things in the world to leave a country that you know, to come somewhere that you don't know. And I totally get the impulse to want to succeed in all of the ways that you value success, right? Which is making money or kind of fields that you know are, you know, kind of surefire winners like medicine or something. Right. Um, I think the downside of that for South Asian communities is that there are a lot of other paths that get foreclosed because of that. And because I think that a lot of South Asian kids who are born and brought up here end up feeling like they need their parents approval to follow, you know, their career paths. Um, You know, I'm, let's face it, like law enforcement is not the preferred career path of most, you know, South Asian parents. Like that's not what they are like dying for their kids to do. And so I think my advice is, that at some point you have to decide what you want to do for yourself. And this is whether it's for law enforcement or whether it's for the arts or politics or, um, you know, any number of career fields that have not been the traditional career fields that our parents have understood to be um, paths to success. And you know, that's a tough choice. It takes a lot of courage to forge your own way. Um, But, you know, I think that where I see people end up regretting things is when they don't, you know, they don't, they're not interdirected and decide what they want to do based on their own passions and interests and instead feel like they have to follow a path that is being prescribed for them. Yep. I love that. I love that. And we've actually heard that a lot. Um, you know, I had a chance to talk to a, a South Asian police officer and uh, he said the same thing. That conversation with his parents was tough, but ultimately if it's something that they, he really wanted to do and, you know, was very successful in that route. So that's, that's great, great advice. Um, great. So, uh, you know, if people are interested in, in learning more about you, Asha, or, or you know, or reaching out, where can people find you online? Or what's the best way for people to find out more about you? And uh... um, well, probably following me on Twitter. I I tweet a lot. Um, if I'm 
doing talks or anything like that, I'll usually tweet about it. I do have a website. Um, so if people want to watch, you know, clips from CNN or read pieces that I've written, um, I'll also have an events page up there pretty soon. Um, but kind of the best real time way to kind of, you know, know what I'm thinking or doing <laughs> is to follow me on Twitter. Okay, great. And I'm at Asharangapa underscore. Okay, perfect. And for all the listeners, we'll put that in the show notes so you can uh, you know, have direct access to Asha. But Asha, thank you very much for, for, t- for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Some of the stories you have are just incredible and very unique uh, oh, thank to the South Asian community. So thank you very I much for your time. It. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time. Mm-hmm.